Father, we just come before you and uh, we love the opportunity to gather and to study your word and to have you minister to us through the pages of scripture. So Lord, just have your way in our hearts. Give us a little more understanding of who you are, perhaps what you expect from us, and Lord, help us to accomplish those things that you've created us to be. Meet us on your pages of scripture now. In Jesus' name, amen. The book, I'm not even there yet, the book of Titus was written by the Apostle Paul to uh, his young protege, Titus. Uh, Paul and Titus had been longtime associates. Uh, We don't exactly know when or where Titus uh, became a Christian, where he was introduced to Christ. We can't be sure of when he actually met the Apostle Paul. We're not sure of how the two got connected, but it seems that Titus came into Paul's life during Paul's second missionary journey. And by the fact that Paul calls Titus a son in the faith, it's pretty likely that Paul is the one who led Titus to faith in Jesus Christ. And during the time together, they spent quite a bit of time together. And during that time together, Titus traveled and served with Paul extensively. Uh, he was with Paul in Corinth. And, when, and he's mentioned nine times, mentioned by Paul nine times in the letter of 2 Corinthians. When Paul and Barnabas, I'm not speaking very well today, let me try it again. When Paul and Barnabas attended the Jerusalem council, Titus was with them as they settled the issues of Christians needing to becoming Jews once and for all. In fact, Titus would become Paul's example of a Gentile believer who had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And in the book of Galatians, Paul argued that Titus had no need to identify himself uh, through Judaism, that he, could, he didn't need to follow the Jewish laws, he didn't need to follow the, religious, the religion of Judaism, either through circumcision or obedience to the law of Moses. After Paul's first imprisonment, he took Titus with him to an island called Crete, where they ministered together, probably during a time which they led many people to Christ. And when Paul departed, he leaves Titus behind. He leaves him in charge, if you will, of the ministry of the churches, of the work that's going on there in Crete. Titus was prepared for this. Titus had spent about a year with Paul in Corinth, and after he'd traveled extensively with Paul, he was familiar with the problems that would plague the church in these New Testament times. In this letter to Titus, Paul is simply reminding Titus of the truths that he's probably already familiar with. He's probably already talked about it. They've had conversations. Paul shared his heart. But Titus just needs that fresh reminder. You know how you are. We forget things sometimes. It's good to have that fresh reminder. Titus knew firsthand about the trials and the disappointments of leading a group of believers who were new to the faith, who were immature in the faith, who were selfish, divisive, and worldly. You could say it wasn't his first rodeo. He's been around this type of thing before. And it seems like Paul has great confidence in Titus's ability. He trusts his his doctrine. He believes in his spiritual maturity, his leadership, his dependability, and his genuine love for those people that he is ministering to. The book of Titus, well, it's known as one of the pastoral epistles along with 1st and 2nd Timothy. There's three of them, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1 and 2, and then Titus is the third. And these pastoral epistles or these pastoral letters were written to Paul's young protégés, pastors that Paul had raised up in the faith who were serving alongside of him or under him. And they're written to instruct, to strengthen the young pastors that Paul had discipled. This letter to Titus will focus on the qualifications of church leadership, especially their theology, and their personal character and conduct. In other words, he's going to tell them what to look for in the lives of church leaders. But it will also focus 
on the conduct of those people who are in the church. So if you were tempted at the beginning to go up, I'm not planning on being a pastor, book's not for me, I can check out for the next six or eight weeks, not true. Because he's going to have a lot to say about how the people in the church should be behaving, should be interacting one with one another, with each other in the church, but also how they should be representing Christ to the outside world. Let me just give you a little bit of background on the island of Crete. Crete is located in the Mediterranean Sea. The island is southeast of Greece. It is about 180 miles long. It varies in width from about seven to about 35 miles. Because of its strategic location, Crete had been heavily exposed to both Greek and Roman cultures. And we could say very easily, we could classify it as a worldly place. There was lots of worldly stuff, as we would say, going on there. The people of Crete, well, they had developed a reputation that you probably don't want to follow after. They were known as lazy people. They were known as gluttons. That means they eat too much. And they were known as liars. In fact, the term Cretan became, became known as a way to describe somebody who was lying. You're such a Cretan. You're, such, you're like the people of Crete. It became a derogatory term because their culture was known for lying. These churches in Crete, as I said, they're relatively new plants. They haven't been there that long. They were immature in their faith and probably small in size individually, but there was probably several of them that made a larger church collectively. So they were probably meeting in homes individually, smaller, but then together, if you were to look at the whole island, there was probably a much larger group if you were to group them all together. In order to supervise or in order to have someone over top of all these small churches spread across such a large area, Titus needed some help. He couldn't do it by himself. And Paul's going to encourage Titus to identify, to train, and ordain elders in each church. And he's going to tell Titus, Titus, I want you to set these churches in order because it implies that right now they're out of order. So with that introduction, let's pick up in Titus chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to cover the first five verses this morning. Follow along as I read. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, but you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. In these first couple of verses, Paul packs in a lot of information about himself. And I think it's interesting, and we're going to study them in depth, because when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, I think he's a good model for us as Christians to want to be like the Apostle Paul. So we're going to see what he has to say. It was common in the ancient world to begin a letter with some information about the author, about who's writing the letter. In our culture, we sign the letter at the end. At their culture, they sign the letter in the beginning. And this often this introduction or this salutation, it would include the author, author's name, information about themselves and perhaps the authority by which they're writing the letter here Paul clearly identifies himself by name Paul there's not it's not really in question I note oftentimes there's in in theology there's arguments about who wrote which book this is this is not one in question everyone pretty much agrees that Paul is the writer of the book 
and Titus is the recipient of the book. And Paul tells us there, he's the one writing it, he identifies himself by name. But then he tells us two things about himself. He tells us about his ministry or his mission, and he tells us by what authority he seems to be writing this letter. Paul's ministry there is right there in the first verse, is that he was a bondservant or a servant, or he is a bondservant of God. He's a servant of God. The Greek term here, it's doulos. That's what it means, servant. It literally means a slave. Paul is saying, I see myself as a slave of God. And it's not just any slave, because sometimes a slave was brought into slavery by, uh, by, through war. Or, or maybe they, one country would conquer another that would make the, 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 the people of that country servants. That's not the case here. This, is, this term means it's someone who was born into slavery. They were born that way. They are the physical property of their owner. There's also a Hebrew word for bondservant. Perhaps if you've studied, you're familiar. And a bondservant in the Hebrew is someone who has been set free, set free by their master. They can go leave. They don't have to be in slavery, but they have willingly chosen to continue to yoke themselves to their master. They become known as a bondservant in Hebrew. The, the Greek word indicates the servant is the property of the master and was born into that position. The Hebrew word means it's there by choice. Well, which is the one that we're referring to here? I think it's both. I think Paul's, it's, it's both situations. Let me put it to you this way. Paul's recognizing that he belongs to God. That his life, his, the reason he's created belongs to God. Initially, Paul was born into the slavery of sin at his first birth, just like you and I were. We were born into the slavery of sin. When Paul was born again, he was born into a life of slavery to God, just like you and I should be. When we're born again, we should realize I am giving my life over to God who is becoming my master. Paul recognizes that his life is not his own. And when the master says go, he'll go. When the master says stay, he'll stay. When, when the Lord leads him in one direction, he's willing to go. That's why he identifies himself as a bondservant or as a servant of God. When it comes to our Christian life, my Christian life, your Christian life, do you realize that when you said you wanted to be born again, that you were volunteering, signing up for a life that would be devoted to serving God. You see, no, that's not what I signed up for. No, I went to church once and the pastor said, if you didn't want to go to hell, I just prayed this prayer and I would be good. No, no, then you got, it was misrepresented to you. Heaven is part of salvation, but salvation is me saying, I want to follow God for the rest of my life. I am putting myself as a servant underneath of him to do what he calls me to do. Far too many Christians today misunderstand that, I think. You see, the idea of this is, if I want to serve the Lord, if I want to follow God, literally, I'm asking for my will to be swallowed up in God's will. I'm saying, you're saying, Lord, I had these plans for life. I made these plans. I have these things in motion, but I want what you want. I trust your will is better than mine. I'm willing to do whatever it is that you call me to do. You see, far too often today, we want to take God along with us. God, bless my plans. God, help me with this thing. God, do this for me. And, and, and he becomes essentially the servant sometimes in our life, where I want to tell him through my prayers what he needs to do today. But really, it should be my prayers going to find out to what does the master want me to do? How can I serve him? Do you see how we can kind of twist that around sometimes? So I have to ask you the question, how are you doing as a servant of God? Have you ever considered yourself that way? Have you ever really said that as a Christian, I am required to serve the Lord and he's my master? You see, it's been well said that in order to see how you're doing as a servant is to simply look at how you respond when someone treats you like one. 
How do you respond when someone treats you like a servant? Well, no one's going to tell me what to do. No one's going to say that to me. Don't they know who I am? That's not how a servant responds. A servant responds, yes. How can I serve? How can I help? What do you need? Secondly, Paul tells us there of his authority. He says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ. This means he is a special messenger of Christ. It's pretty safe to assume that if there's a messenger, there's a message. It means I have to tell you something. There's a, I've been given a message. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm a special messenger. I have a message from God. And I want you to see something in the humility as Paul is identifying himself in this letter. He could have identified himself with much pride. He could have identified himself with much stronger language. He could have said, Paul, a brilliant scholar, because he was. He could have said, Paul, a highly educated Jewish leader and member of the Sanhedrin who, tra who was trained in Greek literature and philosophy. Or he could have even boasted about his Roman citizenship. He could have said, Paul, the one who was caught up to the third heaven, the one who performed miracles, or the one who straightened out Peter and the Jews in Jerusalem. That's not how he chose to identify himself. He said, Paul, I want, he said, Titus, I want you to know I'm Paul, a servant of God and a messenger of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wasn't concerned about what people thought. He wanted you to know that primarily he saw his life as a servanthood, a life of servanthood to God. Whatever you need, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. And now as we get into the next part of verse 1 there, it seems to get a little confusing. Let me just read it in context for you. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've got that. We understand that. Now, he says, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which, you know, you, go, ah, that's, you just lost me, Rob. I don't, I'm not following you there. I'm not, let me, I understand Paul's a bondservant. I understand he's an apostle, but I don't understand this according to the faith of God's elect. I, I'm lost there. What exactly does he mean? Let me see if I can shed some light on that for you. The phrase that is translated according to the faith, it would probably have better been translated as for the furtherance of the faith. In other words, to further the faith of God's elect. Paul's a bondservant and an apostle. Why? For the furtherance of the faith. The faith of who? Of God's elect. Is that starting to make a little more sense to you? So he's, he wants to, he, he's doing what he's doing so that he can further the faith of God's people. Do you realize how he's accomplished that in the, much of the New Testament that he's written for us? We gather and we study Paul's letters. We're reading what he wrote. And it's, it's furthering our faith. He's doing that. He wants to further the faith, faith of God's elect. Now someone might jump up and go, look, see, there's, the, there's that word, the elect. Paul was a Calvinist. Paul was not a Calvinist. John Calvin wouldn't be born for another 1,400 years. Paul understood that there was an election. He writes about it. The elect he's talking about here are those who have a saving faith in Jesus Christ and those who will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ in the future. They're the elect. They're who he's referring to. If you're a Christian, you need to know the Bible says that you have been elected by God. You have been chosen by God before the foundations of the world. You've been picked. You've been chosen. You are elect, the scripture says. I firmly believe in God's election of the believer. I believe in God's sovereignty. Why? Because it's what the Bible teaches. It clearly shows that. But I also believe in man's free will to choose. 
I believe that the Bible also teaches that man has a free will. Yes, God has elected man, but man still has a choice to make. Even though God knows what man will choose, his election is based on his foreknowledge, the book of Romans tells us. And here's where things get messy in theology. People will say to me, well, how do you reconcile the two? They seem to be, they're not, you, can't have, you can't have both. And I simply say this, I don't have to reconcile the two. In my infinite mind, I realize God is much greater than my infinite. My finite mind is probably a better way to say it. My finite mind, I realize God is much greater. I don't have to reconcile him. I'm just called to believe what the Bible says. And when the Bible says we're elect, we're elect. When the Bible says that shows me that I have a choice, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, like people did with Noah, the choice, I believe we have a choice. How does it all work together intricately? I'm sorry, I can't, I can't tell you that. I've settled on the fact that I'm just going to simply believe what the Bible says. I'm going to teach what it says. And here Paul is saying that he is doing this for the furtherance of the faith for those who are elect, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul, he has this role as a bondservant and an apostle. He's for the furtherance of the faith of God's elect. That's even us who believe. And notice it says there in verse 1, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. And I get it. The way this is written, it's kind of hard to understand. The word for acknowledgement there is epigenosis. It's something that we know definitely. Something that you're, you really know something. It's something that you're positive through experience. You, you've got it. You know something. It's there. He's saying that, he's saying that it's not just something you heard about. You ever try to quote an article and you think, well, it said something like this. That's not the word he's talking about here. This is something that you were confident, that you confidently know. The Christian's knowledge of the truth is what he's saying there. The elect, the Christian, there's something that you're going to know. That's the knowledge of the truth of God. The truth about God that Christ died on the cross. All the things that we study in scripture, these truths, he's going to tell us they're going to accord with godliness. That word for accord, it means it's going to produce something in us. It's going to produce godliness in us. The Christian's knowledge of the truth will produce godliness or should produce godliness in their life. Shouldn't it be the same way today? That's what he's writing there for us. I believe that when a person gets saved and they come to this understanding, this knowledge of truth that God that sent Christ and Christ died on the cross for their sins and what Christ did, they're going to have an inborn, inbred, it's inside of you, an appetite to learn more truths about the Lord. You want to know more. I need more understanding. I want, I, there's something I need to grasp more of. It's what causes us to grow and mature in our faith. When you believe on Jesus Christ, there's something and you truly get a grasp of that truth. You go, I, I, I got I to try to understand more. I got to know more. I got to grow more. There, there's got to be more to this. That truth is what produces godliness in your life. Now, let me ask you a question. What exactly is godliness? Well, it's being more like God. Well, that is true. But let me describe it to you in another way. Here's kind of a practical definition for godliness. Godliness is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Let me say it again. Godliness in your life is the manifestation, it's the Holy Spirit making himself known as he works in your life. Let me give it to you this way. As, the Holy, as you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will begin to convict you of things. 
He'll begin to convict you. Hey, don't look at that. Don't talk like that. Don't watch that. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't think that. that. But he'll also convict you to do things. I want you to start doing this and start doing that and go talk to that person. As he begins to convict you, as the Holy Spirit convicts you of something and you respond in obedience, there are certain, certain things that you might stop doing, other things you might start doing. This process unfolding before us is godliness. You're becoming more godlike as you respond to the convictions and to the leadings of the Holy Spirit in your life. So you get the truth. The truth produces godliness in you. This is what it should do. The divine truth and godliness, I don't think you can separate the two. When people say, well, I've prayed a prayer to be saved, but there's no fruit in my life. I think the truth will always produce fruit. The fruit is the godliness it produces in somebody's life. I believe divine truth and godliness, godliness are impossible to separate. If you really know the truth, it will produce this godliness in your life. And you don't have to strive at it. It just happens. Now, unless you got saved yesterday or just last week, unless you're relatively newly saved, your life today should look different than it did 10 years ago or the day that you got saved. There should be a growth. There should be a maturing. There should be a godliness happening in your life. There should be something different that's taking place, something that's unfolding. And all of this happens, look at verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. All right, Paul says this, I'm a bondservant, I'm an apostle. I'm here to further the faith of those who are saved. And their knowledge of truth will produce a godly life as they live out their life in the hope of eternal life, which God has promised before time began. And by the way, God can't lie. In other words, as you learn and believe the truth of God, you come to the realization there is a hope of eternal life. Are you sitting here this morning with the hope of eternal life? Do you, have you come to the realization this life is not all there is? You go, I'm really glad you said that. Because if it is, I was going to really be disappointed. This life is not more. There's, this is not it. There's more. God has promised this from before time began. And as you learn these truths, you realize there's a hope in eternal life, a purpose for everything, a plan for the future. It helps you navigate the difficulties in this life. One commentator said this. He said, this eternal life is not a wish, but a hope. In this sense, hope is an anticipation founded not on wishful thinking, but on a promise from the God who cannot lie. Aren't you glad that as Paul is penning this, as the Bible speaks of eternal life, it's from a God who cannot lie? Aren't you glad that you're not going to get to the end and go, oh, I'm just kidding. Just, just a joke. Just want to see if it changed the way you lived. All your other heathen friends, all, all the, they were right. Just that's it. It's all over. Aren't you glad that God cannot lie about this? So as a Christian, here's how it works practically. As a Christian, your knowledge of the truth, your knowledge of the things about God should be producing godliness in your life and you should be living with the hope of eternity every day. Is that happening in your life? Is there a desire to know the truth? Is godliness being lived out? Do you remember that there's eternity in play here? There's a bigger picture in play. Let me ask you this question. If eternity is in play... If there's a hope of eternity, let me ask you, when does eternity begin? When does it begin? When does eternity begin? See, most people think that eternity begins when they die. 
But that means it hasn't started yet. But if I'm a Christian, I have a hope of eternal life, hasn't it already begun? Am I already not living out my eternal life right now in this body here before you and you before me? Hasn't eternity already started? See, we like to think this life is just a practice round. And it really begins when we die. So it doesn't really matter how we live here. When we die is when everything is going to really matter. No, this is part of our eternal life. Sure, our physical body is not eternal. You guys know that, right? You're going to get rid of this fleshly body. You're going to get a spiritual body someday if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. It's not eternal. But our spirits are going to live on forever. So in a sense, our eternal life is already being played out before us. It's already begun. Let me just give you some scripture references. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Everlasting, eternal, same Greek word there. Your belief in Jesus Christ gives you everlasting life, not something to claim in the future, something you can live out right now. Yes, your physical body will change, but your spirit will go on forever. Why is that important? Because the hope of eternal life, the future being eternal for us, tells us something. It tells us how we should be living our life today in light of that. The way that you live your life today, the way that I choose to live my life, the way that Paul says, I'm a servant of God, he realizes eternity has already begun and it's going to make a difference how I live today in eternity. The hope of eternal life, it should produce, well, it will produce many things in your life. Just to cover a couple of them this morning, let me list just a few. The hope of eternal life should give you encouragement in serving the Lord or in doing the Lord's will. It should give you a desire to know, God, what do you want me to do with my life? You created me. You bought me. You saved me. Here I am. What do you want me to do? And that doesn't always mean I want you to be a pastor. It doesn't always mean I want you to go move to a foreign country and eat bugs for a couple of years. It could just mean I want you to work in, I want you to be a husband and a wife, and I want you to serve in your local church, and I want you to lead your children to Christ, and I want you to just just go through your daily routine. It doesn't mean it always has to be something, some big, grandiose thing. It's just being faithful every day. The hope of eternal life should, should produce faithfulness in serving, even when you're not recognized for it, even when it's difficult, even when serving God is inconvenient, because it almost always is. You know that, don't you? Whenever you decide to take a step of faith, I'm going to serve the Lord. I can promise you the hot water heater is going to break. There's going to be all kinds of things. People are going to call. Work's going to want you to come in early. It's going to be inconvenient. That's just the way that it goes. But every believer should desire to hear those words in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you have that desire? Do you live your life now to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant? You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. In other words, you were faithful over a few things on this earth in the flesh. Now let me reward you in the spirit. I will make you ruler over many things. And he says, enter into the joy of your Lord. There's something something coming greater. A good servant is required to be a faithful servant. Are you living this life as a faithful servant? You see, the world wants to confuse us. They want to get our mind on everything else. They want to get our mind on stuff that we need. They want to, advertising spends billions of dollars to try to tell you what you need to be happy. They want to to get your mind focused off everything but the Lord, and they want to just get you away from it, away from him. 
But Paul could say this. He could say, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul said, Christ Jesus laid hold of me for something. And I want to lay hold of everything that he has for me. That should be our heart as Christians. Lord, I want to live where you want me to live. I want to go where you want me to go. I want you to serve where you want me to serve. I want to do what you call me to do. I want to lay hold of that. Paul would say, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He would later say, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, we have diminished Christianity to a thing we do on Sunday morning. And that's not Christianity. Christianity is something we live every moment of our life, every day of our life. It's something that we, we strive to be servants of God. The Apostle Paul, the mighty Apostle Paul said, I'm a servant. I'm a bond servant. I'm a messenger. I've got a message. I'm serving and I'm speaking. That's all I'm doing. But the hope of, the hope of eternal life gives us something else important. It gives us encouragement in suffering. Because in this world, there is suffering. Have you come to find that out? It gives us the ability to see value or purpose in our suffering. We can realize, listen, I'm going through this test. I'm going through this trial. I'm suffering through this illness. I'm dealing in this difficult financial situation. I'm stuck in this thing that I'm, God is teaching me something here. And it shouldn't be our prayer just to end it. It should be our prayer to, Lord, make me more godly through it. Make me, you know, give me the Holy Spirit in your life. Produce in me, manifest in me the work of the Holy Spirit through this difficult circumstance and this difficult situation. Not, for, because, not, not because it's, it's cool. It's because you're doing something greater in eternity. That's what I understand. As a Christian, we've got to get this perspective of, of death ends everything. No, that's just the doorway into eternity. That's just the shedding of our, of our, pers- of our fleshly body. But we go on into eternity with him. He goes on to, or Paul in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said this. He said, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. I had a chance last week, well the week before last, I got to go to the dump. You know the dump, the landfill? I got to go to the rubbish pile, okay? And I took this big trailer. I had 4,300 pounds of junk on this trailer, stuff. And I drove it up to the top of the mountain. I backed it in. I got out of the truck, and I was walking on garbage, your garbage. I walked across your garbage, and I dumped out my garbage on top of your garbage. And you know what I realized? Everything I own will end up here someday. Everything, all of it, from the car to the house to the stuff, it's all going to end up on this rubbish pile, on this garbage pile. Yet sometimes we'll spend so much effort, so much energy trying to just get one more thing that we think will make us happy. But if I have the eternal perspective, not that I can't have worldly things, but they're not what, they're not, they don't produce joy in me. They're not what I look to. I understand, I have the right perspective that where it's all going to end up someday. It's all going to be in the same place on top of that mountain someday if they can haul it there or they're going to burn it down and then haul it there. It's just the way it's going to go. So Paul could say, I, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things <coughs> and count them as rubbish. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means, if by any means, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
You see, Paul's perspective on life is one that we need to have. I'm a servant. I'm a messenger. I want to grow in godliness. I'm going to do it in the hope, in the light of eternity that I'm facing. Put all that together, that gives you a Christian life that says, I will go and do, go anywhere or do anything for my Lord and Savior. That's what Christianity is. Not just Sunday mornings, not just Thursday nights or midweek studies, or not just luncheons and picnics. It's, it's a heart and a life that says, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, Lord. And Paul goes on to tell Titus in verse 3 that God's timing is perfect. And this is the message that has been committed to Paul. Look, he says in verse 3, but this is God speaking, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So in those three verses, we saw quite a bit. Let me see if I can summarize them for you. Paul says this. He says, I'm a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the furtherance of the faith of those whom God has elected. Why? So their knowledge of the truth will produce godliness in their lives as they live in the hope of eternal life. And all of this has been made known in God's perfect timing, and God has committed this message to me. That's kind of an easy way to put that introduction that Paul's saying. It was a rather detailed introduction, but I think it's people like Paul that we need to look to and look at his life and say, where do I stack up? Am I willing to live what Paul lived if God called me to? How far will I go? How much of my life is off limits to God? How much of your life is open to God? How much of your life will you, will you say, God, don't, no, don't, don't go there. Wait a minute, he's God. He's created you. He elected you from before the foundations of the world. I've, he's got plans for you. Why would you want to prolong his plans that he has for you? You wouldn't, trust me. But he says there in verse 4, he tells us who he's writing to. He says, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Notice Paul says, a true son, a true son in our common faith. The language behind this phrase, true son, it's very strong and it indicates that Timothy is, a, is the legitimate offspring of Paul's ministry. Not that he's his biological son, but it's very strong in saying, which is where we get the idea that Paul is the one who brought Timothy to Christ. He's his true son in the faith. Usually in Paul's letters, he begins by saying grace and peace. But in all three of the pastoral epistles, he includes mercy among his greetings. Why? We don't know. Lots of people have speculated pastors need more mercy and for different reasons. But the truth is we don't know. But what we do know, and notice that all these things, grace, mercy, and peace, are from who? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you need grace in your life, if you need mercy in your life, if you need peace in your life, these all come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe they come in just that order. You have to receive the grace of God to get the mercy of God to be at peace with God. And peace is not a feeling. It's not a peaceful feeling. It's not the way that I feel. It's a position that I occupy before the God of the universe. I'm at peace with him. Why am I at peace with him? Because I am covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you're not at peace with God by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God. That's what the scripture's teaching. Now, as we come into verse five, <clears throat> Paul gives Titus the reason for writing this letter. See if you can figure it out. There's two reasons, actually. I think you got this one. Verse five, for this reason, 
I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I command you. So he's writing to Titus here, and he says, hey, I want you to do two things, Titus. Number one, I want you to set in order the things that are lacking, and number two, I want you to appoint elders in every city. And when Paul tells Titus to set things in order, it clearly implies that things are out of order. I need you to fix what's broken. Remember, Titus is leading a group of churches in an area where the people are known to be lazy, gluttons, and liars. They were new believers. This was their culture. They needed to be taught. They needed to be discipled. Truth be told, Titus was given a rather difficult task. Hey, Titus, I want you to take care of the church here, and it's going to be difficult ground to sow. It's going to be be hard. You're up against a lot of the world. It's going to be difficult. But there was no better man for the job. Paul trusted Titus. In fact, when it comes to a difficult job, there's some people you would say, no, no, don't send them. There's other people you would say, you have to send them because this job is so hard. That's the kind of guy Titus was. He can handle it. He was going to be able to deal with what was taking place. Paul says, Titus, I need you to set things in order. And the phrase set things in order, it's a medical phrase that was applied to setting a crooked limb, taking a bone that was crooked and making it straight again. In other words, the church had gone sideways, it was crooked, and it needed to be made straight. And that's what he's asking Titus to do. I need you to correct certain doctrines. I need you to deal with certain attitudes. I need you to set specific orders, practices in place. And secondly, Paul said, Titus, I need you to command, I command you. I command you, Titus, you can't do this by yourself. I command you to appoint elders in every city. Apparently, there were churches in Crete who did not have qualified leadership in place. And as a result, many of those churches were troubled by, as verse 10 will tell us, rebellious men. Idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Every church, every gathering, every home Bible study needs to have somebody in place that is grounded in the scriptures, that is living a life that people can follow after, that can stand up and say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Have you ever been to a home Bible study where everyone can have their own opinion and no one's wrong? It's just my opinion. It's the way I see things. Well, I don't care how you see things. If it's wrong according to the scripture, somebody needs to stand up and go, no, that's not right. Well, that's the way I see it. you You have a right to see it however you want. But according to the Bible in this chapter and verse, it says this, and the way you're looking at it is incorrect. We can't just go. And if you don't have that, what you have is everybody has an opinion. And the way I see it is fine. The way I, it's okay over here and it's all right here. And well, just believe what you want. That's kind of what religion is turning into today. Just believe what you want to believe. There's no standard of truth. So someone has to be able to hold that standard of truth in place. Without godly leadership, the churches in Crete, they would not survive. Or any church from that matter. Paul's pattern of ministry. When you look back at his ministry, what he did was he led men and women to Christ. He nurtured them in their faith, gave them in, nurtured them in the faith, gave them in the endurance of eternal hope, and provided them with loving spiritual leaders. He provided them with the people that would oversee them, that would lead them in that way. He provided that for them. As we come into chapter six, I'm sorry, verse six, Paul will instruct Timothy, I'm sorry, Titus, on what to look for in church leaders. What is a church, what's required of a church leader? What kind of person do they have to be? What character traits are required? As he 
tells us this going forward in Titus, we can take this same requirements and go, we're going to land those right here in Cumberland, Maryland in 2019. Because what was required back then, the standards have not changed. The same truth as required there is required here. It's the same exact thing. They're necessary in our churches today. Church leaders, pastors, elders, they're not chosen because they want the position. They're not a, they should be appointed. They should be, they, they're chosen by God when their lives line up with the characteristics that Paul's going to instruct Timothy in and, then, and Titus in. And also he instructed Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy. It's important that we don't just pick something. You know, as a church who's going, you know, we need a pastor someday. We need, to, we need to find somebody along. One of the things we look for is these characteristics. Whoever we bring, whoever it is, whoever God brings has to line up spiritually, scripturally with these characteristics. What a fitting place for us to be studying. So Paul left Crete. He left Titus in charge. And forgive me for mixing up Titus and Timothy sometimes. The T-letter words get me. But I mean most of the time I met Titus unless I'm referring to First and Second Timothy. But Titus is in charge, and Paul is writing back to him to say, to charge him, hey, Titus, I need you to set things in order, and I need you to locate, train, and appoint elders in every church. And when we meet together again, we will pick up there in chapter, in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, and find out what characteristics are required in church leadership. So I'll meet there next time. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the Apostle Paul, and we see in his life not the desire to elevate himself, but instead the desire to place himself underneath of you as a servant, as a messenger. Lord, may that be us, and we be willing to place ourselves underneath of you, not above you, not next to you, but may we see ourselves as the creation and you the creator. That we recognize you as our master. That we take your word seriously. And Lord, may we grow in godliness. May the Holy Spirit manifest himself in our life in a way that's visible and clear. That we continue to become more like you. And Lord, if we haven't, may we begin living in the hope of eternity. That this world is not all there is. That there's coming a day where we will see you face to face. In which we will be rewarded for what we've done. Lord, we need that right perspective because sometimes we can get our eyes off of you and onto everything around us, onto the world. So just straighten out that perspective this morning, Lord. May you accomplish in us all that you created us for. May we walk faithful. May you protect us from the enemy. May you lead us in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.